The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Psalms, The Anatomy of the Soul. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Psalms, chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me from the sake of your steadfast love, for in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Sam. Uh, I'm on staff here at Sacred City Church. Uh, I'm also an elder candidate here. And I've been with Sacred City pretty much since the beginning, for about five years now. Um, and, and myself and about 50-ish other people here in this room, um, over the course of the next six months or so, somewhere in the beginning of 2017, we'll be planting another church in Moline. Okay, and this has been a long time in the making. We started talking about this in our last series, about city renewal, planting churches, renewing the city, all of that stuff. But this has actually been a long time in the making. We started talking about planting another church in 2014. Um, our church was growing. Our kids' ministry was blowing up. Uh, and we realized that being here in the theater, there were some time and space restrictions that were keeping us potentially down the road from expanding further. And so elders started thinking about it. We decided that um, we didn't want to move out of the space because that was one option to move out to a bigger venue, have still stay one gathering. But we didn't want to do that um, because we love the relationship that we've built with the city here in this space. So we kind of threw that one off the table. Um, The other option was going to two services, but due to time, um, they usually have matinees periodically through the the calendar. So uh, we weren't able to kind of have two services. So we started thinking about, well, what does it look like to, to continue to grow? And, and what we found God really lay in our hearts was to plant another church. Uh, and it might seem kind of silly um, to have two congregations within a 10-mile radius, um, but, but with the structure of our church, the way things are set up, we thought not only was this the most effective way to grow, but this is the way that we can have the largest impact in our city by having smaller congregations scattered throughout the city. And so we started thinking about, um, we started planning and strategizing. I personally felt called to be the guy who would kind of head up this church plant, and the elders affirmed that. And so um, in December of 2014, we took a Moving the Mission Forward offering. Um, and, and in that offering, we were able to raise a, a significant chunk of our first year's budget um, for this church plant. It was really exciting. We had a lot of momentum. Um, and so we were ready to take the next step. And the next step for me was to be assessed with Acts 29. That's a, the church planning network that we're a part of. And so I set on a voyage of this application process. And I've talked about this in the past, so I'll keep it real brief. Um, but it starts out with a, a long 
um, written application. And this is more than just like a one or two page job application, you know. This took me a month to work through, a month to, to kind of go through all the questions, and it, and it touched every part of my life, relationships, my marriage, financially, um, talked about pastoral experience, previous job experience, hobbies, I mean, it, theological positions, covered pretty much everything. And once I get finished with that, I progressed on to the next phase, and that was to uh, have a Skype session with the assessment director who's located in the UK. So I sat down with him for a two-hour Skype interview. That was great, you know, and then he advanced me on to the next phase, and the next phase was the most intimidating and intensive of the process, and that was to sit down. My wife and I went out to Chicago for a weekend or midweek, um, and we sat down with pastors and their wives, and they just kind of grilled us. They asked us a lot of questions. Um, They really took good care of our hearts, asking us heart-level questions, um, checking to see if I'm a man of character, if I'm competent, if I'm compatible for uh, planting a church, excuse me. Um, And so we we went through that, and in total, that was about eight hours of interviews, sitting in the room with other pastors and their wives, just asking us questions. It was was great. It was was a really encouraging time, and we came home pretty optimistic about this. And, And the thing about the assessment was that really the, the timeline of the church depended upon how my, the results of my assessment. If we got the green light from the assessment, we're going to go ahead and plug on, keep moving forward. But that wasn't the case. God didn't give us the green light. He gave us a, a yellow light or more of a, a really stale yellow light. And what I mean by that, these guys um, in the assessment process, they are about as uh, objective as they can be. Because Acts 29 Network is more concerned about planning churches that'll stay around for the generation, following generation and the generation after that, and not so much about cranking out a bunch of church plants that are just going to fold. And they said, well, Sam, we think, we think that you, you are gifted to plant a church. We think that you can do that. But we don't know if that's the best thing for you to do right now. And so they suggested, take a year, take a year to kind of pull back let your heart be refreshed. They, they, were, they identified a few um, of my tendencies and said, hey, we, we really want to see growth in these areas. And one of these areas um, was emotional intelligence. They wanted to see me gain an understanding of my heart. And so we did, my wife and I and, and the church, we, we yielded to our assessor's opinions. Um, and it was kind of tough, really, to, to kind of put things on hold. We, we had, at that point, we had a lot of momentum, and then it was like, pause. Um, but we, we yielded to their wisdom, and I'm so glad we did because this last year has proven to be just an incredibly beneficial year for me personally, and I, and I think um, in turn that'll mean uh, a great future for Sacred City Moline. Um, and like I said, one of the recommendations was to gain some emotional intelligence because they had noticed that my heart had been kind of closed off to experiencing full range of emotions, and what they, what they kind of told me is that ultimately what happens when I do that is I, I become unable to connect with others on a deep heart, meaningful level. That by closing off my emotions, I, I'm unable to connect with others. And so they, they made a recommendation that I read this book here. It's called The Voice of the Heart um, by Chip Dodd. Um, and this is kind of what our series is loosely based off of his ideas as we go through the Psalms. I'll talk more about that, but, but I highly recommend this book. This was such a great book for me, trying to rediscover the voice of my heart. So if, if, and I think other people can attest to that who have picked it up, but great book. Get it on Amazon. It's good stuff. 
And as I read through this book, and I reread it probably, I read it three or four times just because every time I was kind of learning something new, God was doing something in my heart. God led me on a very difficult year, but a very joy-filled and freeing year of rediscovering the voice of my heart. And as a staff here, we read it together. We had a lot of good discussion, and we decided, hey, this book has a lot of valuable things to teach us about how we, uh, how we observe and, and, and resonate with our emotions and how that leads us to God and to connect with ourselves, to be honest with ourselves and others. And we're like, this could preach. So we were like, hey, we, we should have a short sermon series about this. And so we did, and we figured the best way to do this to have this discussion is through the Psalms. And Dr. Dan Allender, he's a Christian psychologist, he says that perhaps no section of scripture is more, poignant, more poignantly exposes the inner world of our heart and more vividly reveals the emotional life God has for us than the Psalms. So for this week and the next six weeks, we're gonna continue in our sermon series, The Anatomy of the Soul, working our way through Psalms. In doing so, we're gonna kind of take time to focus on the different emotions or different feelings that we have. And what we're ultimately going to see is how God uses these feelings and these emotions to lead us toward the abundant life. And the abundant life is a life marked by meaningful and robust relationship with God, ourselves, and with others. It's marked by deep laughter, the ability to share burdens, and the freedom to be honest and genuine about our hearts. The important, this is, we, we think this is important. The series is important for us. We've kind of been working our way over the last year through, basically it's this theme of spiritual health, the happy life, the sacred life, and now we're in the anatomy of the soul. And, and we think that this series is an important part of our discipleship because becoming a disciple of Jesus means learning to be a human the right way. And part of live, being a human the right way is experiencing full range of God-given emotions and how they are meant to draw us to God and to others. And so today, if you haven't picked up on it already through the reading of the word, through the songs, through the liturgy, we're focusing on sadness. And, and God has been working on my heart in this arena for the last year. And just as way of a disclaimer, I might lose it today. I, I might just like cry, like full on ugly cry. I found that out over the last year. I don't cry pretty. I'm just like a oh, kind of thing. So you might see that today. And so I ask, would you please be gracious to me and refrain from taking pictures? <laughs> because the last thing that I need in my life is to become a meme, you know? I don't need that. Okay? I've got Kleenexes here in my back pocket just in case. I'll turn around or something, but... But before we get to the sadness part, I want to talk about the Psalms in general, because last week we kind of just jumped right in. Um, I want to tell you a little about the Psalms and what they do to function within the context of Scripture. The Psalms are a collection of ancient Hebrew poems and songs that express the full range of human emotion and human experience before God. The Psalms have several different authors. The majority of them, however, are written by King David, just like Psalm 6 is today. And they were written over the span of nearly 1,000 years, dating back from Moses all the way up to, I think, about 500 B.C. And they're diverse in their composition and in their content. But the thing about the Psalms is they're just as relatable today as they were the day that they were written. Because as humans, whatever time, whatever, whatever um, classification we are in, we share these experiences 
These are, these are shared human experiences, and this is the reason why the Psalms are perhaps the most popular book of the Bible, because there's, the Psalms are for everybody, and there's a Psalm for every occasion. And the Psalms are relatable because they're brutally honest about the deep hurts and the great joys we experience in life. There's no sugarcoating things. They don't hide what, the psalmists don't hide what they feel in theologically accurate rhetoric. They, they speak from their heart. You know, that's a little bit different than our, our modern day Christian music. It seems that there's a lot of happy, clappy Christian music, and, I, and I'm not against it, but if we're gonna be honest about our hearts, there should be a balance between the happy and the heart-wrenching pain that we experience. And Bono, uh, lead singer of U2, and Eugene Peterson, the guy who, who wrote the message translation of the Bible, they sat down and they discussed the Psalms. And one of the things that stood out in that conversation was how honest the psalmist is. Listen to what Bono says here. The psalmist is brutally honest about the explosive joy that he's feeling and the deep sorrow or confusion. And it's that that sets the Psalms apart for me. And I often think, gosh, why isn't church music more like that? And Bono goes on to say, that's why I'm suspicious about the Christians is because this lack of realism. And I'd love to see more of it in art and in music and in life. He's saying we need to be honest about our hearts. Now, for some of you, you might start squirming your seats in a, a little bit because, whoa, Sam, you're getting a little too introspective here. You're, you're on the border of emotionalism, and, and I'm, I'm not, I promise you, I'm not moving towards that. And, and let me use this quote from John Calvin to, to support this stance. He says, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. And the Psalms do this. The Psalms reveal truth about God while giving us a new language that allows us to express our hearts correctly before God. The Psalms promote self-understanding and an understanding of God, but not only that, they allow us to connect with other people, right? The shared human experience. Not only are the Psalms relatable, but the Psalms are also expressive and artistic. The words have been carefully chosen. The phrasing is well thought out the instrumentation carefully considered. And they say that poetry set to music is the deepest expression of the heart because not only do you communicate with carefully chosen words, but the music itself communicates to the feel. Now, as a musician, I can't help but give us a quick music theory lesson here because we all know the song Happy Birthday, okay? It's a happy celebratory song. It's in a major key because a major key it's a, conveys happiness, Okay, so if we sing happy birthday, we sing it to be happy. Now, if we were to sing happy birthday in a minor key, it's the same words, the same message, but the music itself conveys a completely different meaning. It's like a, oh, it, it's like a drag, you know? But that may actually be a little bit more accurate to how we feel as we progress, hearing happy birthday in a minor key. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. All that to say that, that the music supports the meaning of the words, and this psalm, Psalm 6, actually gives us musical direction in the subtitle. If you look here real quick uh, as we flip, it says, To the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. Now, what this is saying here, it's calling for a stringed instrument to drone a low note, something like this. 
right? And it's meant to convey this sense of groaning, this sense of languish. And, and we can see how the lyrics make that clear. David, King David, who wrote this psalm, is deeply saddened by something, but it's not quite clear what. And actually, I think that this is what makes this psalm most uh, approachable is because that there's nearly an infinite amount of things that cause sadness. Sadness is experienced when we lose something we love or when things aren't as they ought to be. Sadness is our heart's response to meaningful loss. Now, let me clarify what I mean by meaningful loss. I mean, it's something that your heart desires earnestly, something that your heart gravitates towards fiercely. It's more than your loss of a favorite sports team. It's more than a loss of your remote control, though as a Raiders fan and as somebody who's been searching for my Apple TV remote since October, those things are sad. But this isn't the sort of sadness that the Psalms convey, or, or actually true sadness. The sadness that we're talking about is the loss of something irreplaceable. And ultimately, it's the loss of relationship because we are relational beings. We are made by and for relationships. And when relationship is lost, that brings sadness. Now, back in November, my wife and I, we found out that we were expecting baby number two. We were so excited to see our family grow again. And uh, it was in December. We, we were going in for our 10-week appointment to see the ultrasound, to see the baby for the first time. We were so excited. We got in there. We were talking baby names and just kind of imagining the future, what this child's going to be like. Uh, we go in there. Um, ultrasound technician does her thing, and she starts asking what, in hindsight, are some pretty al- alarming questions. So she kind of quickly finishes what she's doing, and she sends us to go see the doctor. We're sitting there. We have no idea what's going on. We're sitting in the doctor's office. The doctor finally comes in and long face. She sits us down, sits down, and she says, we think you're in the process of miscarrying. And at that point, my wife, she loses it. She's sad. Just grief sets in instantly, and I have a different response. I kind of freeze. I don't really know what to do. Um, I'm thinking in my head, I've got my afternoon is full of meetings. My evening is full of meetings. I don't have time to think about this. I don't have time to process this. And so it wasn't until on the way home from my late night of meetings where I finally lost it. I just, I gave in to the sadness. Sorrow crept in. I began to cry, not just cry, but bawl, like that ugly cry that I was telling you about. Full on tears streaming down my face. My gut was in a knot. It was so sad. It was so hard. It was such a loss. Even this week, as the baby would have been born any day now, I feel this pain. I think about the life that we lost. I think about the hand that I'll never get to hold. The laugh I'll never get to hear the wrestling matches that never will be. It's a huge loss. It's a huge loss, and the sadness is great. 
That's how sadness works. Sadness is proportional. The greater we love something, the greater we yearn something. When that's gone, the more sadness we feel. And I know I'm not the only one who has stories of loss-induced sadness. I know I'm not the only one. We all have them, whether it's miscarriage, infertility, excuse me, death of a loved one, loss of a friendship, or if it's even the pain of physical limitations and, and the implications of that. I know the stories in this church. I'm not, I'm not oblivious to the sadness in this room. Sadness is everywhere. It surrounds us. But we all kind of respond to sadness in different ways. Some of us, maybe we indulge in sadness. We kind of give into it in a way that kind of takes us wherever the wind blows. We let sadness control us, and it brings about destructive patterns. It, it leaves us to be fatalistic. The, the people who kind of give into that are, are easy to identify. They're hot and cold, and they're all over the place. You're trying to gauge them, and, and you just never know. But that's one way to kind of indulge. And if, there's a ditch on both sides of the road here. So if, if one of the ditches is to in, indulge, overindulge in sadness, the other ditch on the other side of the road is to avoid it altogether. And we might do this, we might avoid sadness for several reasons. I need to blow my nose. Can you, uh, hold on, I'm meet my Sorry, that'll save me from sniffing every two seconds. I need some water while I'm at it. Like I was saying, we might avoid sadness for a bunch of different reasons. The pain of it. There's pain. We don't like it, so we try to push sadness away to avoid feeling that. We, maybe we think it's, it shows weakness. We feel weak when we're sad. Or maybe some of us hyper-spiritualize it and we say, well, sadness must be a sign of a lack of faith. That if I really trusted God, then I wouldn't be sad about this. That's not the case. Some of us, we, we just don't like feeling vulnerable. I, being sad exposes us. It exposes our heart. It exposes what we care about the most. We don't like to feel vulnerable. And so what we do is we keep our distance. And, but if we allow sadness, we kind of allow sadness on our own terms. And one of the ways that we do this, allow sadness on our own terms, is through self-pity. It sounds like this. Nothing goes right for me. As much as I try, things just don't go my way. And you know that I try. This is what it sounds like. It's resignation. It's a resignation that's rooted in hopelessness. The things won't change. This is just the way it goes. And so we feign acceptance of life issues that are very painful and unresolved. Oh, that's just the way it is. Yeah, I'll move on. No, no sweat. 
and this might be in some sort of twisted way, an attempt at expressing your heart, but what it does, it reveals an unwillingness to be sad. And really at the core of it, it's manipulative because what you're doing is trying to impose your sadness, which you ought to be feeling upon somebody else where you're not experiencing it yourself. Chip Dodd says in his book, The Voice of the Heart, self-pity is a way to escape the pain of sadness by trying to make other feel sadness for you. Now, I, for a long time, operated out of a way of avoiding sadness, but it didn't quite look like self-pity. It looked like mental maneuvering. As uh, my Myers-Briggs tells me that I'm a thinker, I think that I'm logical and rational. I can think through things pretty well. Um, God wired me as a problem solver, but he also wired me in a way that I should feel and experience the voice of my heart. At some point, I realized that those two things are fighting against each other, okay? My mind and my heart are kind of in competition. What I realized, that's easier to let my mind take over, to let my mind kind of short circuit what my heart feels and, and use reason to work past my heart, I would even use my theological knowledge, like what I know about God, to kind of sidestep my heart. And I did this for protective reasons, as most of us do when it comes to sadness, avoiding sadness. I didn't want to feel hurt and pain, so I did mental maneuvering, and it sort of worked. I gave the appearance. People saw me as composed, level-headed. It seems that I could navigate life fairly well. But what this did, it bred this false sense of maturity within me. Because the reality was that there was a deep disconnect in my heart. I wasn't being honest about my heart. And many of us thinkers who fall on that spectrum of the Myers-Briggs tend to avoid our emotions with mental maneuvering. It might be easier to live this way, to kind of step around the heart. But what this does, it leads to impaired living. It's the opposite of the abundant life where we don't connect with God, we're not connecting with ourselves, being honest about ourselves, and we're not connecting with others. What this does, it devalues the complexities of human life. And Dan Allender, the doctor that I mentioned earlier, calls us out. If if you're in this, listen, listen here. There are times when lack of emotion is simply the byproduct of hardness and arrogance. The scriptures reveal that this absence of feelings is often a refusal to face the sorrow of life and the hunger of heaven. It is not a mark of maturity, but rather the boast of evil. It seems harsh. What he's saying here is that by rejecting or downplaying our emotions, we are rejecting reality. And as we move through Psalm 6, we're going to see that reality is where God meets David as he honestly expresses his heart, his sadness, and brings it before God in a way that leads to trust and intimacy. So this morning, my prayer for you is that we would be students of David this morning, that we'd follow his example in this way, opening up our heart to God and learning a valuable lesson from our sadness. So we're actually going to jump into the text now. Okay, verse 1. Let's take a look. Oh Lord, he's crying out, oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now anger and wrath might seem like a strange place to start in a psalm that is about sadness, but what David is, re- is doing, he's revealing his biblical worldview. He knows he's not entitled. 
He knows that he deserves God's anger and wrath on account of his sins. And let me clarify here, because this is, this is sort of a gray area. It's hard to really pinpoint something. But being sad is not a sin. But there is a relationship between sadness and sin. There's a direct relationship where specific actions may result in specific sadness. For example, if you gossip about your friend, that sin of gossip may lead to a broken relationship, which ought to, if you're a human, create sadness in your heart, okay? That's a direct correlation. But there's also a general relationship where all sadness is a result of sin entering the world when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Up to that point, before Genesis 3, everything was perfect. Everything was the way it ought to be. There was no sadness to be found in the human experience, but, experience, but when sin entered the world, it brought with it a plethora of sadness, cancer, mental health issues, death, decay. These things are not necessarily brought on by a specific sin we commit, but rather they're an effect of sin's presence in the world. And whether David's sadness is induced by a specific sin he committed or is a byproduct of living in a fallen world, he knows that he is a man in need of grace because he is a sinner in a fallen world just like us. He knows that everything above the grave is God's grace. He knows where he stands, but more importantly, he knows the grace of the one whom he stands before. So he pleads for God's grace in the midst of his troubles. Look at verses two and three. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? David isn't holding back here. He's being honest about his heart. He's not moving towards self-pity. He's not doing mental maneuvering. He's not overindulging in his emotions. He's crying out to God with an honest heart. He's a desperate man. And what we see here is his sadness is so severe. His body is weak. He's aching physically. And one thing we need to acknowledge here is that emotions are one of the most least reliable yet most influential forces that guide our lives. That emotions affect decision-making, our behavior, and they even have physical implications on our body. So David is distressed. His sadness has him in a tough spot, so much so that his sadness is non-ignorable that he can't even finish his thought in verse 2. He cries out, How long? Sadness, his sadness is intense, but not only is it intense, it seems like it just keeps going and going and going. And many of us can relate to that. In the midst of sadness, it feels like time stops. Not only do we carry a heavy burden, we have to carry it for a long, long time. And I've found myself crying out to God like this often. How long, God? How long will this sadness set in? And most recently, for me, when, I, when I've been crying out how long, it's over this social, more, more so human injustice that has become acceptable in our society. How long will violence prevail in our streets? 
How long will people keep devaluing and suppressing others based upon the color of their skin and their culture? How long will my African-American brothers and sisters have to be afraid of being in the wrong place at the wrong time? This is not how it's supposed to be. And if as a church, we value all of life, we ought to be the most distraught by this injustice. And we ought to be pleading with God, how long? How long will this go on? Like David, we have to cry out for God's grace, cry out for his healing and salvation as he does in verse four and five. He says, turn, to, turn, O Lord, and deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love, for in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give, who will, who will give you praise? David appeals to God on account of God's steadfast love. He doesn't say, God, save me because I'm a good person. God, save me because my, my list of good things outweighs the, the list of bad things I've done. He doesn't say, God, save me and I'll become your all-star. I'll do whatever you want for me. He says, God, save me on account of your steadfast love. And this word steadfast love is an important word all throughout Scripture because it refers to God's covenantal love. In the Hebrew, this word is hased. It's God's loyal love based upon his trueness and his goodness. It's God's constant undeserving love that does not fluctuate based upon our performance. It is steady and constant, and the valve is always on full blast. I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. It's God's stop, not, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And this is what David appeals to here in verse 5. He draws the connection here and he essentially says that God, if you don't do something, if you don't step in and intervene for me, I waste away. I die. I'm down in the grave. This might seem morbid, but what David is doing here is expressing his truest trust, most genuine trust in God and his steadfast love. He's saying that God is his only hope in the midst of his grief. Because God has said his steadfast love is the only constant in David's life. David says, there's nothing else that can help me. There is no hope. There's nothing that can pull me out of my sorrow except for you, God. And as I read this, as I meditated on this this week, this convicted me because this is not the normal dialogue of my heart, right? I mean, I want it to be, and sometimes it is. But this is not normally how I respond. I find myself looking to other things to distract me, to keep me preoccupied, rather than going to God for help. And you do it too. I know you do. You do it with entertainment, with Netflix, video games, board games, online shopping, sports. You do it with busying yourselves. You overcommit yourself. You take on more projects. You let your kids run your schedule. You immerse yourself in good things like work and school and fitness. And there's even destructive ways we do it. We go to, to destructive substances, patterns of sinful behavior, even sinful relationships, all to kind of put that behind us or ignore it. 
it's too easy for us to fall in this trap. It's easy to look elsewhere for relief, but there's no other place for us to go. There's no other place where we can find true comfort and salvation than the embrace of God's steadfast love. And that steadfast love is personified in the person of Jesus. God shows us his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love by dying in the place of sinners. You and me, people who are undeserving. And in the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus goes to the cross to pay for our sin. He gives us the ultimate gift of new life, which we are made holy and acceptable to God based upon Jesus' righteousness, not our own. This, this good news causes hymnodists to write, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but fully lean on Jesus' name. What he's saying here is that I only trust in God's steadfast love. And he goes on, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. This is an expression of our trust and reliance of God's said, his steadfast love, which is made visible in Christ. And here's the thing, David, when he wrote the psalm, he didn't have Christ. He didn't know, he knew that there was a Messiah coming, but he didn't know the person of Jesus. Whereas today we do, we read the psalm and we see Jesus in this text. And so we can confidently say to God, God, I'm trusting you because you have proven yourself trustworthy in Christ. But even after David declares his trust, there's still pain and sorrow. Look at verse six. His confession isn't some sort of magic phrase that makes all the pain vanish. And there's a temptation for us to think that sometimes, that if I just trust God more, then everything will kind of become rainbows and roses. As if God is twisting our arm, waiting us for, for us to say, uncle, and then the pain will finally stop. But that is not how God works. God doesn't just want a confession. He wants our hearts, our broken hearts. With all the aches and pains, he wants us to come to him and find comfort and healing. He wants us to rely on him in the midst of our crushing sadness. So what David does is just that. He goes to God in verses six and seven. Take a look. I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of the grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. David's saying here, I'm, I'm worn out. My grief has taken, zapped me of all my energy. I've cried so much that my bed is more of a soggy, tear-filled sponge, and when that gets too wet, I move to the couch and fill the couch with my tears. He's literally saying, I'm bawling my eyes out. What David is doing here, he's showing us that it's okay to cry. Sometimes the situation demands it. We don't need to feel ashamed for expressing our feelings if we're doing it while we trust in God. There's, listen, listen to this. There's no reason to say, I'm sorry, when you're crying. That's because our tears honor what we love. They're like a gift that we give to whatever we lose. And ultimately, those tears honor God because God is the giver of all good things. When Beck and I lost our second child, we shed a lot of tears. Beck and I would spend our evenings on the couch, taking turns, bawling our eyes out. This was good 
and it was right because that child, though we didn't meet him, was a gift from God that we lost. So don't hold back the tears. Honor what you love and trust God through the pain. In verse 8, David says, depart from me, all you workers of evil. We don't know specifically who David is talking about, but we know that there are forces against us. Satan, the flesh, the world is opposed to us trusting in God. They want us to blame God. They want us to curse him. They want us to abandon the faith. They want us to give up. They want us to think that God is not near to us. And there are moments, if we're honest, where doubt sets in. There's moments where our faith seems to wane. We might think God is too busy. He is distant. Maybe we think because of our sin, God is punishing us. But there's, that's not the case. Because we were told already that God works according to his steadfast love. So he does not do those things. He does not retreat from us. He does not pull away. Let's look at verses 8 and 9, the second part of 8. He says, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. God hears our cries and moves toward us. Just like a good parent who hears their child in agony and rushes to comfort them, God meets us in the reality of our sadness. It's not, he doesn't meet us in an abstract, fairyland, idealistic world. He meets us in reality, in the present sadness, In the middle of the messiness, in the thick of grief, as tears are shed and our bones ache, God is moving toward us. This is the redemptive purpose of sadness, people, that God draws near to us. Though it's painful, sadness sets us on a path of healing and comfort. And if we don't feel sadness, then we'll never know the sweetness of God's glorious pursuit. And sadness, when responded to appropriately, will always lead us toward experiencing God's comfort. As God moves in, he isn't displeased, he isn't upset, he's not trying to hush you, he's not trying to push you to get over it. He relates to our sadness. He says, I know it hurts. It's right for you to be sad. It's right for you to cry because sin is a thief who robs us of our joy. And God can relate to us because he's lost something so great, greater than what any of us have ever lost. When sin entered the world, God lost something that was valuable to him. Relationship with us, those created in his image, and it broke God's heart. Just think, you know the pain that we experience when we lose one loved one, right? It's hard. Years and years of grief follow. into the future even. Maybe it never ends. God lost all of humanity. Just imagine the sadness of our Father's heart. He knows sadness. But God doesn't just relate to us in our sadness. He does something about it. This is what David's getting after in verse 10. He's saying that our affliction has been dealt with. God is taking care of things. God was so saddened by this loss that he would do anything to bring his people back into relationship with him. He subjected himself to even more sadness by sending his perfect son, Jesus, who he loved with his whole heart. 
from eternity past into eternity future, the love he had for Jesus was so great, and he sent him to come to earth and to die in order to defeat sin and bring his people back. God experienced great pain, searing loss as his perfect relationship with Jesus was broken. And this sadness God experienced would ultimately lead to our salvation and our deepest joy. This would give us the ability to have relationship with God once again. So God raised Jesus from the dead, proving that sin and death had been dealt with once and for all. And because of the resurrection, death now gives way to life. Therefore, our sadness now gives way to joy. John 16, 20, Jesus says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Guys, there's still sadness in our world, no doubt. But it's perishing day by day, moment by moment. The darkness is being pushed out. The light is coming forth. David says something similar to this in Psalm 30. He says, sorrow may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Friends, you might be in a dark, cold night. You might be in this overwhelming sense of of darkness, season even. But the warmth and the light of the morning sun is coming. There's a day when there's no more sadness or sorrow where everything sad will come untrue, as Tolkien says. There's a day where all loss is repaid, a day where I get to meet the child that I never got to meet in this life. And all of the joys that this life would have offered that I missed out on or that I lost will be repaid in a way that I can't even imagine in the new heavens, new earth. Tim Keller says this. This is just a phenomenal quote here. The biblical view of things is resurrection, not a future that is just a consolation for the life we never had, but a restoration of the life we've always wanted. This means that every horrible thing that's ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. See, sadness is not the end of the story for God's people. For those who trust in Jesus, we have the promise to hold on to. Revelation 21, we're told, he will, Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Right now, you and I, we we wipe our own tears. Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Friends, if you are weary, if you are filled with grief, if you feel the agony of sadness, there is good news for you in Christ today. Now, as Christians, we have the ability to experience the dark depths of sadness more than any other people in this world because the gospel frees us to give an honest assessment of the world around us. We know that if I'm, if I'm a bigger sinner than I could have ever thought, then the world around me is far more broken than I could have ever thought. We, ought, we don't have to sugarcoat the brokenness. We ought to be distraught over systemic racism, over the pain of cancer, the brokenness of failed marriages, and the unescapable reality of death. But at the same time, without minimizing those experiences of pain, we ought to be the most joyful because of what Jesus has done to overcome this misery and offer us the joy of his salvation, both now and forevermore in the life that is to come. 
And this is done by grace through faith. This is why the Apostle Paul can say, I'm sorrowful. There's a lot of things the Apostle Paul could have been sad about. I'm sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. This is the great Christian paradox, how we can be so sad and so joyful at the same time. Well, if you're not a Christian yet, I want to invite you today to trust Jesus, to appeal to God's steadfast love and trust in his grace and mercy in Christ Jesus. See that God is drawing near to you so you can draw near to him. See that he is ready to save you from your biggest trouble, your biggest source of sadness, sin, and death, and he is willing to forgive you of your sins and be with you and move toward you in your grief. He doesn't make things disappear He comes toward us in the midst of it. And for those of you who are in Christ, we ought to rejoice that God has heard our cries and he has done something about our sadness. Though we have sorrow now, there's a day coming where joy will abound. And I I urge you now, while you can, take your sadness to Jesus and trust him alone. Repent of the ways that you suppress, minimize, pacify, ignore, and overindulge in sadness. Open your heart to him. Allow God to meet you where you are and experience the abundant life that his resurrecting love offers us. Today, when we come to the table here, we see this paradox on display, that Jesus' blood was shed, his body was broken, but he did it so that we could have a deep joy. And so as we eat this meal prepared for us, I pray that Jesus would make us into a people who would weep deeply over the things that grieve God while anchoring our hope in the one who is making all things new. Let's pray. Father God, we we praise you on account of your steadfast love. How it is your character and your goodness that determines how we relate to you. Ultimately, it's, it's Jesus' righteousness who, who affords us the ability to cry out to you as Abba, Father, and to know that, that as we've professed this morning that you are Father who comes toward us and helps us in the midst of suffering, in our times of need. I pray, Father, you would open our hearts to be honest about what's going on. And I pray that you would anchor us in the hope that is in Christ. Allow us to grieve appropriately. Allow us to honor the things that are lost while hungering for heaven and being joyful that heaven is guaranteed for those of us who are in Christ. We thank you for this gift and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.